my fear of failure was really in disappointing people. Never was it in supporting my family. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. Get ready to be inspired. Join us for a chat with Brian Terrell, the cool founder of B. Terrell Group. We dive into his incredible journey from farm life in Texas to becoming a tech maverick in the accounting industry. During this episode, Brian and I explore the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, the risks he took, and the thrilling world of DOS-based accounting systems. Remember those? So I'm here today with Brian Terrell, B. Terrell and Associates. It is B. Terrell and Associates. B. Terrell Group. B. Terrell Group. Thank you. Well, Brian, thanks for making the drive over today. I really appreciate it. So would you maybe kind of tell the audience just a little bit about what your organization does? Sure. We uh, are for 32 years helping small and mid-sized companies automate their back offices using Sage counting technology. First, it was predecessors to the Sage Intech program that we focus on today. And really since 2012, all of our focus around automation has been in the back office with Sage Intact. Uh, we have uh, developers and other advanced degree holders that make up our staff, including four or five CPAs, and enjoy the alignment that Sage Intact has with uh, the AI CPA. That's a nice to have for us. And uh, also enjoy the culture that Sage Intact has uh, created over time that I know that uh, many others are aware of as well. It's a great ecosystem to be a part of. We're adjacent to it in that ecosystem as well and concur with everything you just said. Let's maybe go a little bit back in time. So talk to us a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, what was it like? I grew up in a small town between Lubbock and Amarillo called Plainview, Texas. It's named Plainview for a good reason. (laughs) We can see all the way nearly to halfway, which is just about 100% farther away than quarter away. On the road, highway. Those are towns. Those are actual towns. So they are farming communities. My grandfather was a farmer, both of them. And my father is a retired farmer. So I was driving tractors as early as sixth or seventh grade. And we would work pretty hard at a first a quarter an hour. And later got a raise to a dollar and a quarter hour. Wow. To raise the money to come to Six Flags. Now, I don't want anybody to think that we were poor boying it or that I had humble origins. I mean, really, I've always had every opportunity and every advantage. My uh, parents had plenty of resources I never wanted for anything, but they did insist that we learn to work. And so that was sort of the beginning of my career, so to speak, as a child on the farm. I enjoyed it. We didn't have to work all day. We only worked half a day in the summer and we would get to be like the rest of the group going to the country club for, you know, swimming in the afternoons up until we got into high school and then we had to work all day and I felt sorry for myself, <laughs> but I got over that. That was my beginning. What did you grow on the farm? We grew cotton, corn, soybeans, wheat, onions, and potatoes. Wow. And who did you sell that to? Well, we had uh, for the vegetables, a vegetable processing buyer in town and a plant and contracts were made directly with those guys. If it were corn, the corn would be sold primarily to feedlots. And then, you know, eventually became the cattle that we all consume by going to the grocery store. Cotton, 
I'm not entirely sure how, you know, there were big buyers for cotton and still are that would take possession of that and then send it on to wherever it goes after that step. Commodity broker comes in and just buys it up and packages and sends it off to somebody to manufacture. That's correct. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. So my father was always in the hedging business. In other words, he would see the price in April, knew that he couldn't deliver the product until October. If it was a good price, then he'd sell it then and then offset that sale later on by reversing that transaction and delivering the actual product. So he was very sophisticated in terms of pricing and business in those ways. And that was always interesting to me. Yeah. That whole concept is fascinating and and fuel hedging, I think, is how Southwest Airlines survived for a long time and, and got ahead of others. And I guess you could do that with just about any any uh, commodity product. That's right. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, we're here in the, the Dallas area today. So you safe to say you you left Plainview at some point. So talk to us about kind of leaving home. Where'd you go next? And how'd you wind up here in Dallas? Because I intended to follow in my father's footsteps as a farmer, I went to Texas A&M, enrolled there in the College of Agriculture, and eventually gained a Bachelor of Science degree there in uh, agricultural economics. However, as I approached the end of that time, became concerned about the viability, really, of my potential profession. Not viability, that's a little strong, but just maybe it looked tough back in the early 80s across the landscape especially given the high cost of money. And it was a very capital intensive business. So I just got spooked. And plus I lacked one of the major reasons that I think someone should get involved in agriculture. And that is the desire to watch things grow. I remember driving down the road with my dad when I was in seventh grade, he turned to me, he said, Brian, you want to be a farmer? I said, yeah, dad. I said, why do you want to be a farmer? I said, well, I like tractors, dad. And I could tell the air went out of the pickup. And I disappointed him because the next thing he said was, gee, I I was hoping you would say that you like to watch things grow. So I felt a little bit of a a disappointment there from him, but rebounded, went to Texas A&M, got cold feet, noticed that my sister had succeeded in her career with what we called a big eight accounting firm back then, Arthur Anderson, and hedged my bets a bit by taking 30 hours of accounting courses to augment my degree plan. And when push came to shove, it was pretty darn easy to accept that offer from Arthur Anderson in Dallas. And that's how I got here. Very different than uh, working in the fields. Very different. So today you leverage that accounting background. How did you make the leap from being an auditor or a pure accountant into implementing accounting technology? Yeah. I took a detour through industry, which means that I was working both not as an accountant and not in accounting by taking an assignment with a real estate company for a while, Trammell Crow Company. And that was between the times that I was at Arthur Anderson and decided to move on from there and the time that I started the business that I'm leading today. And during that short period of time, the economy in the state of Texas really depreciated. I think there were a lot of uh, changes in energy prices in the mid-80s and 87 and 88-ish, and essentially it really hurt the real estate business. So my opportunities there dried up, and I had already passed the CPA exam, so I took an assignment as a contract CPA and eventually was able to find a small business in town that would hire me directly 
as a contractor to do their monthly bookkeeping. And that was the beginning of my business in February of 1991. Things were a lot different back then in terms of technology. Guessing you didn't have email and we didn't have this thing called the cloud. What was it like working with accounting technology in 1991? It was all DOS and DOS is not an acronym that everyone's aware of anymore. It stands for Disk Operating System. It's a character-based operating system that's the predecessor to the graphical user interfaces that we all enjoy today. Those applications were probably the first applications that every business saw in their businesses. Either they had an operational system that helped them produce the product or service that they sold, or they had an accounting system. The original accounting systems in DOS, one of the great early leaders there was an application called ACPAC Plus, owned by Computer Associates and essentially headquartered out of Vancouver, Canada, was a market leader. And it was a system that I adopted in that first contract controller assignment. And eventually that same year of 1991, gained an opportunity to implement that for a manufacturing company in Central Texas and became a VAR in order to facilitate that transaction. So it's really interesting. I don't think it's a stretch to say that you kind of accidentally found yourself in this field. You didn't get out of school and go, I'm going to go implement accounting software. In fact, probably wasn't even that big of a thing at, at the time, certainly not in the small and mid, mid-sized market. The IBMs of the world, I'm sure, were, were doing that for big enterprises, but not for small, mid-sized companies. It blows me away how many people I talk to that just kind of accidentally found themselves in a business. And I'm actually very much in that boat myself. I worked for a company that was using a product that I fell in love with working with and just kind of one day said, I think I can build a career around this. And sounds very similar to your story. It is very similar. It provided me access to a technology playground in which I could play all of the time. I couldn't believe I got to do these things and experiment with new things as they were introduced. And it it was a part of my job. You got paid for it. I got paid for it. Had you always been interested in technology? I mean, growing up out in the country on a farm, what role did technology play in your life as a kid? I saw my dad monitor the weather with a technology device that was always on and always connected. I saw him monitor the commodity markets with a technology device that was always on and always connected. I saw him communicate, you know, the predecessors to mobile phones with technology in the vehicles and and that were on the farm. I was always interested in all of that. All of agriculture was mechanized and automated to the extent that it was possible at that time. I loved all that. That's why when we're driving down the road, he said, what do you like about why do you want to be a farmer? I like the tractors, dad. I was basically saying, I like the hardware. And with the hardware came uh, really kind of cool electronic things. And my dad was a leader in that. He bought a Radio Shack TRS-80 computer back when they were $8,000. The hard drive was as big as this table. (laughs) The printer was a dot matrix printer that cost another $5,000. He went back to class to learn that. When I would come home for spring break, he'd make me enter in the job cost tickets. That's what I spent my spring break doing on essentially a job costing system that he hired somebody to develop. The first of anybody, no one knew of that. No one knew what he was doing. 
So I saw all that and I got really interested in it. I just applied it in a different industry. Yeah. So you, you did have the exposure. That is really cool. So talk to us about making the leap. When did you go from being a W-2 full-time employee to, hey, I'm going to risk it all and go off on my own? You know, I did that earlier in the real estate business when I left Arthur Anderson. I was a straight commissioned broker when I was married, the day I got married. And to my wife's horror, and probably to everybody who knew me, I made an arrangement with someone who owned a mansion in North Dallas to live in their house after I got married for no rent. How did you pull that off? Well, I was just calling on property owners in the regular course of business, engaging them in conversation. And one guy said, you know, my parents had passed away and I'm house sitting this house. I got to go. I hate staying there. It's a big old house and it doesn't mean much to me. And it gave me an opportunity to, that's how it ended up. But when I was calling on people, I, I actually went to Highland Park one day and just started knocking on doors, asking if they had a servant's quarter that we could live in. Cause I wasn't, I hadn't made a deal yet and I was getting married. So I had to figure something out. I knocked on Bill Clement's door. Oh my gosh. He comes to the door or actually it was Rita came to the door. My wife happened to be with me that day. I don't know what arm I twisted, how badly I twisted her arm to get me to go and do that. And Rita says, Oh, come on in. We have a servant's quarters. And so we're sitting in there talking to her, reminiscing about our A&M experience. We'd been out of school for a couple of years. No, at that time, me five or six, no, two years. This was right out of Arthur Anderson. So this was 1985. Been out of school for a couple of years. And she said, you know, she, there's an entire dorm named for her, right? Yeah. So she started talking about that and how all that worked out. And then Bill comes down the stairway, comes down. He's a little less excited about us. And his first comment was, oh, Rita, we've got the highway department living in that building out back. They can't have that. <laughs> So that was sort of the end of that opportunity. But eventually I made that deal, which is a deal just to live for free in some big mansion. Sure. We got the whole mansion, not just the service quarters. But I can tell you, no brand new wife wants to live there. I found that after about a day or two, and we moved on onward and upward into a real apartment within five or six months. So starting B. Terrell, You'd already kind of had the experience of the risk, so you were good with it. My fear of failure was really in disappointing people. Never was it in supporting my family. That's pretty amazing. I can certainly relate to the the fear of disappointing people, and I think a lot of other entrepreneurs can too, but I think it's pretty amazing to not have the fear of being able to provide. I think that's probably what keeps most people from making a big jump like that. It really helps to have grown up in an environment where you're seeing that every day and seeing having that type of responsibility, you know, just that type of way of making your way modeled. That helps. Not only was your dad in business for himself, there's only so much he could do to make the crops grow. My dad has never had a W-2. Never in his life. As far as I know. Is he a second generation farmer? He is. He's a, maybe a third or fourth as far as I know, but he's just never worked for anybody. So he's never had that W-2. So I grew up looking at my dad and think I want to be like him. And so that was not ever the question. Would I be willing to take a risk? It was a question. Am I going to be good enough? Mm. It's the same feeling you're driving down the road and, you know, I've disappointed him there. 
Now, if he's listening to this, he and I know that I haven't disappointed him and he's proud of me. So past that, but there's always a lot of drive there that came from that. Yeah. So I'm sure that things have not always been just perfectly smooth. There's been some ups and some downs in, in the journey. Would you mind sharing kind of some of the, the scarier moments? I've made every mistake that anyone can make. At best, my biggest gift is the ability to nurture a relationship with someone that I want to be like. So that would be someone that I aspire to. I can really serve those people. And so I can develop a relationship with them in their business that makes me very important to them. I get that constant sort of validation that I'm doing a good job and they cannot ask too much of me, nor can they find too much to assign me to do. So that is not scalable. It's hard to transfer that type of relationship so that another one can be, you know, to someone else on staff in order to pursue another one. So that has hurt me. It's helped me in terms of being able to never worry about where the next opportunity was going to, you know, where the next paycheck, so to speak, was going to come from, project was going to come from, but it's not scalable. And it allowed me to over depend on some certain customers that grew to be way too large percentage of my business. So backing away from that was really costly and hard for humbling for me because I wanted to be able to grow that. And I just, I could not figure out how to do it. Deep relationships don't, they don't scale. There's only so many of them that you can, you can have and maintain and I resonate with that. So maybe kind of on the flip side, what has been the highlight so far of your 30 plus years of doing this? I think really one of the biggest highlights is being able to play day in and day out in that technology playground. I've enjoyed the business relationships that I've been able to create. I've enjoyed the innovation that I've observed firsthand, the amazing things that I've seen. And I've enjoyed the opportunities that I've been given because of, for whatever reason, to do things like this, to speak in public, to teach others how to use the technology that I so enjoy using myself, to walk into a client company and be welcomed with a handshake and a hug. In my previous position before I went off and and started my own company, we were getting to work in bigger and bigger organizations. And there was something really cool about household names getting to do work for, you know, recognizable companies. But with that came a lot more red tape, came a lot more bureaucracy, came politics that you had to deal with within those organizations. But moreover, I just didn't feel like I was making as big of an impact. I was a cog in a wheel and I could easily be swapped out and somebody else put in and nobody ever knew I was there. And working with the size of customers that that you work with in your business and, and we work with in our business, you can really see a tangible impact that we make on their organization. You can, and you can be involved in their, knowing about their family and they'll ask you about yours and they'll be accessible to you when there's a a real challenge that needs to be handled directly with them. And they'll make you responsible to them when there's a real challenge that requires your attention. Yeah, that's for sure. So, Brian, what is it that that you guys can do 
better than anybody else? I believe that our culture is around building relationships and thinking long-term and certainly working in the best interest of our client companies through not only accounting technical knowledge, I'm not that guy, but the folks that work with us are really good accountants and have experience in operational accounting. Often, many of them are CPAs or, as I mentioned, advanced business degree holders. They're all certified and tested in in the applications that we work with. So we're good technically, we're good relationally, and we have development resources that allow us to tailor the applications to the exact needs. If there is a, you know, most software publishers, they can't afford to do much more than 80% of everything and maybe sometimes less. That last mile of technology is an opportunity that we can satisfy. We've been leaders, I think, in pricing and engagements that reinforce the relationship culture that we built most recently. I mean, I've always been interested in, since I've seen my dad deal with the commodity brokers, I've always been interested in revenue models. And we were able to early on, early on being 20 years ago, ditch our time and materials billing systems in favor of more of a fixed price. And then, which is very counter to the industry and, and especially back then. And then from there, tip our toe in the water of value pricing, which has never been really effective for me. And now into subscription pricing, which has been an innovation that we've adapted well to. Can you talk a little bit more about that? There's people listening that they're probably thinking about their Netflix. And that is to a certain degree part of what you're talking about. But you're not just providing software on a subscription basis. You're, you're doing other things. So can you maybe elaborate on that? Sure. And I didn't invent it. And there are others that are doing it as well. But I feel like we're at the leading edge here in not only proposing all of our engagements for software, on a subscription basis, which is really not our call to make as much anymore because, say, Gentact is a subscription software revenue model, but also in services. There are two types of services. There are continuing services and there are initial services. And the continuing services are very much in line with some of the original forays away from uh, time and materials billing 15 and 20 years ago. So it's less difficult to imagine. It is different though, because it is more relationship focused and and more all-encompassing. In other words, well, I, I might be able to elaborate a bit more on that. The difficult concept for me has been in the initial implementation services as a subscription. That one has really thrown me for a loop. And we've been doing this for about 18 months. And I guess I'm to the point now where I think that there should come a day when implementation that is looked at more like a client acquisition cost than it is an activity for which a margin should be demanded. In other words, it's like the internet service provider who hooks me up for cable at my office. Is he charging me for hooking up my house or is that just a client acquisition cost for him? It enables recurring revenue and therefore is really a CapEx item that should be amortized over the life of that customer relationship. That's kind of where I'm falling Hmm. on that. Interesting. And it's been the real hardest part of all this. And uh, customers have a hard time sort of figuring it out as well. Something else that you talked about a minute ago that I think is worth 
drilling into a little bit more, you talked about the last mile. You talked about how a software company that they're going to make 80% and they're these last mile pieces. Can you kind of educate our, our listeners on what you mean by that? And then maybe what you, your company are doing to facilitate that last mile? Well, software publishers need to develop their applications to the widest possible audience in order to ensure a return on investment. That doesn't mean that they may be able to integrate to every application or automate every business's core functionality. I mean, they certainly can write checks, but maybe they can't create an electronic funds transfer file for an Italian bank because they can't afford to do that because there may only be 10 people in the world that want that today and 100 people that'll ever want it. So that's not the widest possible audience. And that's an example of something that our firm has done is create an application that takes a payment from Sage Intact and creates the electronic funds transfer file for that Italian bank or any bank or any financial institution in the world. And it's simply a matter of working with that bank to develop exactly the format that they want and riding the rails of the automation that we've already created in the bank or in the payment processing functions at Sage Intact. That's an example. So on the iPhone, you've got the ability to go and take pictures and, and they've got an editor, but there's some people that need more. They need much more fine grained. And so you can go download Lightroom or, or some advanced editor. Is that a reasonable analogy for the consumer space? Yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. How many people think like that rumor user? Maybe not so much, not so many, not at least not enough for iPhone or Apple to take notice. Mm -hmm. So you may have already answered this. I, I have a feeling I'll, I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are the parts of your job that you enjoy the most? Yep, it's the front row seat to the gadgets and gimmickry that's created out there and rolled out in front of me over time. The things that I see for the first time and say, wow, I can't believe that can be done. Technology. I like that. I love serving somebody and, and gaining their business and building a relationship with them. I like solving problems and I enjoy sort of the public facing opportunities that I get in my business simply because I'm the, the guy that you're the guy gets the opportunity to do that. As you've grown and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But as you've grown, what is something that you were able to hand off that you <laughs> you were so grateful to have somebody else doing that for you? Billing, just all the basic accounting, people management. I don't have a, a gift at that or any training really at managing people. And so we have a great manager of our business today. It's not me. And so he, I know, is communicating often and early with our, not only our employees, but our, our customers to make sure that uh, everything is happening as it should and everybody's happy. I can do those types of things, but there are better folks at it than I am. And I, I'll never be the guy that walks into a big room and feels comfortable at a cocktail party. I ask you one time if you are comfortable in that environment and you are, and I appreciate that about you and others. I just don't have that. I can sit down though across from you and feel entirely comfortable over lunch or over a discussion. 
And I can be in front of a group and feel entirely comfortable because I'm sort of feeling as if I have control. But if I could outsource the rest of that, then I would. And to some extent, I have. So you've been able to not only maintain, but grow a thriving business over 30 years. And what you just described, I think, is such an important thing for any entrepreneur, anybody in, in any kind of business to know. And that is you've got to understand yourself and you, you have to understand what your gifting is. And even as the leader, the owner of the organization, your gifting may not be the same as the leader or owner of another organization. And it's important to bring the people around you that can kind of fill in those gaps. And How have you gone about finding the right people? There's a couple of practices that we have and methods that we have. One is a really close relationship with uh, the accounting professors over at the University of Texas at Dallas. I know a lot of those folks and they invite me to speak. We host their students in events and are able to participate in their in recruiting events and hire a lot of folks from there initially, usually as interns and then later as full-time students. I think I have also relied a bit on a character trait survey tools that help me look for patterns in prospective employees that uh, help me identify you know, folks that I think would be successful with us because they have a similar response on those surveys as, as others. And just on that note, we'll pull the veil back. Brian, you, you turned me on to Culture Index several years ago, and we've adopted it within our organization as well. And whether it's Culture Index or Myers-Briggs or DISC or something, I think that there's tremendous value in helping people understand themselves and helping people understand how to interact with other people. And it's made a huge, huge difference for us. I think it's helped me as well. There are those, though, who will say, I know all that. I can tell all that just by conversation. More power to them. I can't. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. So take me through your growth. So you started as a one man shop. How far into the business were you when you hired your next person and the person after that? In those contract controller engagements, that's what we called them back then. They were all on site, so we had to be there. And today, all that would be done remotely. Because we had to be there, that's unscalable. So I started hiring folks to go and sit down inside those businesses and do the work. And I would come by periodically to meet with the owner, to review to answer questions, those types of things. In fact, I would put an ad in the paper because I was married to a CPA mom. I realized that that was a very good way of describing someone who could be successful in this part-time engagement. So I would, I called it the Dallas Morning News because that was the only way to advertise back then. And I placed an ad for a CPA mom. They promptly called me up and said that that was illegal. It had to be a CPA mom or dad And so I mended that ad and we hired a lot over the years. So that was the beginning of it. And it wasn't like it took you years to get to that point that you hired. That was pretty much right out of the gate, it sounds like. Yeah, that had to happen quickly because I could not spread myself any thinner than I was. Sure. Couldn't have grown. And I did have trouble, though, with finding a a good full-time person uh, that stuck with me. I went through several false starts there, but eventually hired a fellow that is still with us today. Really? Yes, yes. Isn't that great? It's hard to find somebody that's been around over 23 years or whatever, however long that's been. It's been a 
a good long while, then we were sort of off to the races because that's a scary thing, right? Getting over that hump. And once you figure out that, holy cow, they do things better than I did because they have more time to do them and do them right and not running from one fire to the next. So how big are y'all today? Yeah, we have 18 or 19 folks. Fantastic. So you talked earlier about you've made every mistake in the book and you talked about your experience. You talked about learning very quickly that one person doesn't scale. Has there been any new venture that you tried out? Has there been some big investment that you, you made in the business that didn't turn out quite like you hoped it would? Well, I've had a lot of ideas that I thought I would pursue and try and hope would work out. I have worked a lot with uh, robotic process automation, thinking that that would be a, another tool in our toolkit. And we were not able to generate subscriptions for that at the rate that we hoped we would and have learned it's that the, the only way for us to be successful with our small to medium-sized businesses is on a managed service basis. So we own the robots and we come in every day and look to see if they have completed their assignments and then we fix them if they don't. That's not what I've originally dreamed of. You know, I've had other things. Sometimes I worry about, you know, will the subscription revenue model become one of those things for me? But I enjoy pursuing them and I get very excited about them and something is certain to happen one way or the other. I told somebody the other day, I'll either be really right on that or really wrong <laughs> and probably a little bit of both. I don't know, but time will tell. We'll see. Yeah. So if you were able to go back and talk to yourself back in the early 90s about starting the business, what would you tell yourself? Is there any do this, don't do that? Is there any words of wisdom or encouragement that you would pass along? I would, and I wish I would listen to myself, but I wouldn't. I would say to myself, stay in learning mode with a larger organization longer because I'll learn some of those people management skills. So you would actually tell yourself to wait a little bit. I would. Interesting. And get as much of that experience and learning that larger organizations give. And they also give a lot of leads for future business that I'd never had. So I would give that advice to myself. I, I realize I would be hard pressed to take that advice, but I would want myself to listen more to that advice. I would probably look for someone as a co-owner who has the strengths that I lack. And then I would learn to be more reliant on outside professionals for advice on things that I are non-core to me. I like marketing and I like to learn it, but I'm a flash in the pan and then I want to move on to something else. I shouldn't even be spending a heck of a lot of my time thinking about that or other things. The worst mistake I ever made, it's probably not the worst mistake I've ever made. The biggest problem that I ever created for myself in business was with a sales tax liability that I allowed to get out of control because I had the wrong professional working for me on that. When we got the right professional, because we were not doing anything wrong, the problem went away. But I lived under that cloud for a long period of time. And that's because I just did not do what I should have. It was doing more in than I should have totally outsourced. We've outsourced several functions and some have kind of come back in in-house. But man, I tell you what, initially it was really hard to 
pay somebody outside the organization to do those things. And then eventually the paying them became the easy part. And then it was the, I'm giving up some control. And over time that has worked itself out too, but I'm with you. There are certain parts of of the business and, and going back to know yourself, know what you're good at, find the people that are good at those things that have the bandwidth to do the things that want to do those things so that they get done and get done well. And that's been a huge key to our success, whether it's been outsourcing payroll or bookkeeping, our HR, it's been a huge, huge thing. And you're doing so well at it, Scott. It's really great to watch. Thank you. Did you have any mentors along the way? My mentors were some business owners that I looked up to because they were making transitions from, it's hard, I think, to find someone who's the right person for a business at the beginning and also the right person for the business after it becomes much larger and more sophisticated. Those are two different types of person. And so there was a man that I saw who was the CEO of a large public company for whom we worked, who was that guy at the very beginning. So he was the guy that went out and got the million dollar loan that allowed him to get started and hired the first person and implemented the first idea. He was also the guy who sold for a billion and a half dollars later on, or I don't know how much, but, you know, really cashed out after 15 or 20 years. And I just was amazed and am amazed that he was able to be the right guy all along the way for every phase of that growth. And uh, he has helped me many times when I've run into roadblocks. And I think I could call on him today, but I've looked up to him. That's great. That's great. What has been your biggest surprise in your journey? I've been surprised by, I guess, the really interesting things that I've seen. I remember where I was the first time that I saw the internet for real. You know, I had dabbled in character-based access points to the internet back in the early 90s and didn't understand the appeal. But when I first saw a real internet browser, I was really surprised by that. So technology has always surprised me. I guess that that's the major thing that continues to sort of slap me across the face every once in a while. I think one of our good buddies, yours and mine, talks about having future glee. So I had that. I'm looking forward to the next really big thing that we're going to have the opportunity to observe very closely. That future glee, we had an interesting conversation before we started the recording today. You've got a big life thing happening and you talked about the birth of of your next grandchild. Can you maybe kind of talk about that future glee in the context of your grandson? Yeah, I am expecting my fourth grandchild any day now. So that's a really exciting thing to look forward to. And my fifth grandchild later on this year, those two children will grow up in a world that will be advancing at a rate even far faster than what we've seen happen over the last, in my case, 30 years. What will they see? And what will the imagination and creativity in combination with the liberty and freedom that we enjoy in this country produce? It's really exciting to think about. It is really exciting. I think about the change that I've seen in my 40 plus years and to think about what's going to happen in the next 40. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Well, Brian, you've, you've been a great friend. You've been a, a mentor to me. I've learned a lot. You've shared little tidbits and 
just little bits and pieces and passing conversations that you don't even know. And later they just kind of sink in and, and click. And so anyway, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your partnership. And thank you for being on with us today. Thank you, Scott. That was Brian Terrell, founder of B. Terrell Group. To learn more, visit bterrell.com. That's Terrell with two L's. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.